Well, good evening once again. It's great to be with you. If you have the uh, Pew Bible with you, uh, turn to page 829, page 829. <clears throat> it's the gospel text that Lou Bailey just read for us. A man is on trial here. He is about to be convicted and then executed for something he didn't do. And the powers that be will either collude in the act or wash their hands of any responsibility. It's a familiar story, unfortunately. Uh, less than 72 hours ago, the state of Alabama put to death Nathaniel Woods by lethal injection. In 2004, several officers, police officers, showed up at a house to serve Woods with a misdemeanor warrant. And as they entered the home, one of Woods' associates allegedly awoke from a nap and, seeing guns, uh, grabbed a rifle and started shooting. Uh, three police officers died that day. At trial, the prosecutors argued that Woods was an accomplice, but they made no effort to say that he, at any time during that day, possessed or fired a gun. Nonetheless, they charged him with capital murder. Woods rejected a plea deal for 20 years in prison. He pled not guilty. He went to trial where he received shoddy representation. He was convicted by 10 of 12 jurors, and the judge decided to sentence him with the death penalty. During his attempt to appeal his conviction, his lawyer abandoned him. And yet, despite all of this, the courts, the governor, anyone in power refused to intervene and said that the sentence must go forward. And so on, 30, on, on Thursday night, he was executed at 43 years of age. Meanwhile, the man who admitted to pulling the trigger and testifies that Woods had nothing to do with the event that day, continues to wait on death row. What happened in the house in Alabama in 2004 was a brutal tragedy. The lives of these police officers were taken. Their families will never be the same. Yet by all appearances, the trial and execution of Nathaniel Woods was itself a travesty. While he was no saint, the facts of the case appear to show that at best, he was guilty, at most, he was guilty of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's highly debatable whether his trial or his appeal process was even remotely fair. And nonetheless, he is dead. And so the question that I have to ask is, did the execution of Nathaniel Woods make some sort of repayment for the murder of the three police officers that day? Was there some great societal benefit achieved by putting this man to death? What sort of world do we live in where the way we get justice for one crime is by committing another? And if this, putting this man to death only added injustice to injustice, then how, as Christians, can we claim that the death of a completely innocent man, Jesus Christ, provides us with 
true and ultimate justice, justification. See, I mentioned this story because this Lenten season, we're taking several weeks to look at the trial and the execution of Jesus Christ. He will face trumped-up charges. He will be convicted on false testimony. He will not have adequate representation. And the one man who could intervene on Jesus' behalf will wash his hands out of political expediency. And so Jesus will face capital punishment alongside other proclaimed enemies of the state. And yet, we say that this travesty, this happening to Jesus Christ, somehow changes the world. We say that it is the enactment of the justice of God and the basis for our being made just. How on earth or in heaven can we draw this conclusion? Well, our short gospel passage this evening from Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, I think is vitally important for a proper understanding of what, in fact, is going on in the trial and death of Jesus. This simple scene pulls back the curtain to help us see and remember how he is achieving justice in all that will follow that we look at in the coming weeks. It shows us three things, what justice is, what justice requires, and how we might be made just. Before we get into it, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Speak now, for your servants are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. Amen. First, what justice is? What is justice? Justice is ultimately the doing of the will of God. Justice is trust in and submission to God. It's doing the will of God. In verses 39 to 46, we arrive at the pivot point in the gospel of Luke. Luke tells us that these events take place at the Mount of Olives. In John's gospel, he specifies that it was in a garden or an orchard. And Matthew and Mark give us the name of the place, Gethsemane. And it's here at Gethsemane that we reach the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. Up until now, everything has been looking forward to this point. But now, in Gethsemane, we are arriving at the end. If you notice in verse 37, Jesus quotes Isaiah 50. 3.12, about himself being numbered with the transgressors. At the beginning of that verse, he says that the scripture must be fulfilled. It will happen. Then he quotes, and at the end of the verse, he says, it now has its fulfillment. A hinge has turned, and we're entering into the end of Jesus' life. This is what everything has been leading up to. The trial is beginning. It's interesting to say that the trial of Jesus is beginning here because Jesus won't be arrested and tried until the next scenes of the gospel. But what you need to see is that the real trial, the one that really matters, takes place in Gethsemane. Notice what frames this short passage in verses 44 
or verses 40 and 46. Jesus tells his disciples that they should pray that they would not enter into temptation. The word for temptation is perasmos, which is the same word that will be used throughout the gospel for trial. It's the same word. And a trial is a legal proceeding to determine one's, own, one's guilt or innocence, a person's guilt or innocence. A temptation is a sort of trial in real time where one determines one's own guilt or innocence through one's decisions. And Jesus here is not on trial yet, but he's facing the ultimate trial, temptation. Earlier in the gospel, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus was tempted by Satan, tried by Satan. Satan tried everything to get Jesus to abandon the will of God. And yet, at each step, Jesus rebuffed Satan with a quotation of Scripture. And at the end of that story, Luke tells us that, quote, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, now in Gethsemane is that opportune time. The temptation comes back with a vengeance. See, when Jesus was in the desert, he might reasonably believe that he could resist temptation, however strong it was, and go on living. But now he's coming face to face with the moment of his death. And thus the temptation is to abandon faithfulness to God in order to save his life. This helps us see what justice is in the ultimate sense. What is Jesus on trial for here? What is what is the temptation? What determines his justice or injustice, his innocence or guilt? Who is the judge? The judge is God, the Father. Will he say yes to God's will or will he seek to do things in his own way? And he's torn. In verses 42 through 44, we see him in, Luke says, an agony prayerfully submitting his human will to the divine will. Not my will, but yours be done. Justice is the doing of the will of God, the submission of one's human will to God's will to the end of one's life. Justice is doing the will of God. Now, what does doing justice require? Justice requires suffering and even death. The one who does the will of God in an unjust world must suffer. Christ's justice leads to Christ's death. The other night, uh, we were reading through a children's Bible with our kids, and we were in about this section of the Gospels approaching the Passion narrative, and my wife Annie made a comment about uh, how it's so sad that pretty soon Jesus is going to have to die. And one of the kids, who will remain unnamed, said, why is it sad? He has to die. It was a flippant comment. I'm not sure exactly what was meant by the statement, but I think it expresses what we often think of Jesus, that God sent him to die. That's his job. All other death is sad, but Jesus' death isn't sad. It has to happen. And there's something deeply right about that. Jesus' death has to happen. In some sense, Justice requires Jesus' death. But why? Why? 
When Jesus here is, says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, he is expressing a very natural, human, non-sinful desire not to experience a shameful, torturous death. His humanity, his human will, like any properly functioning human will, shrinks at such a prospect. Yet we know that this is a cup that God wills him to drink. Does that mean God wills torture, injustice, pain, and death? This might surprise you, but the answer is first and foremost, no, not directly. What God the Father wills for Jesus the son, is that he would remain faithful to his identity as son. But maintaining his identity as the son of God, trusting in the father in the midst of a God-hating world, will lead to his death. So only in the sense that God wills him to maintain his identity does God will his death. This is why though the father loves him, Because the Father loves him, this cup cannot pass from him. I hope we're not singing this song later, um, but there's, you know, some of these worship songs, the Father turns his face away. We we kind of think of Jesus establishing justice in his suffering because he is taking the Father's wrath upon himself as the Son. That he is a sort of cosmic scapegoat, a a pound of flesh that God needs. That's not quite right, however. See, the way that Jesus makes atonement and establishes justice for us is by living a life of complete faithfulness to the Father until the end. He's the person, the only person who was truly just all the way to the end in the midst of injustice. Think about it this way. What's happening here, the way God is establishing justice in the face of injustice, is Jesus is redoing the story of humanity. Remember, this takes place in a garden. We're in a garden. What happened in the first garden? Adam refused the will of God, even when it would only lead to life. And here, Jesus, in a garden, accepts the will of God, even when it results in his death. He is the new Adam who does the will of God. And this Adam's achievement in maintaining faithfulness, even in the face of an unjust death, is why God raises him up to new life and makes him the head of a new justified humanity. Finally, there is a person who has achieved the will of God that we can be joined to, his righteousness as ours. But it requires suffering. Christ's justice leads to Christ's death. Now, third and final, how is it that we can become just? We become just by attaching ourselves in faith to the justice of Christ. His justice must become our justice. We attach ourselves to him in faith through prayer. You know, what frames this passage is the fact that the disciples are going to fall into temptation they will succumb to the trial. 
denying their calling to be faithful to God. They do not triumph in prayer. Notice again that at the beginning and end of the passage, Jesus tells them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. But he comes at verse 45, and we see they could not pray. They are asleep with sorrow. They are not wholly reliant on the Father. They will not maintain faith in the face of temptation. In the Gospels, Peter becomes the focal point of this reality. He will deny Jesus. But all the disciples flee in the face of trial and death. And we're seeing this very clear contrast here between the possibility of the old humanity and the new humanity. Jesus is the new humanity. They are the faithless and feckless old humanity. And this contrast points us to how it is that we are to be made just ourselves, to be justified. We cannot be made just by our own faithfulness, but only by losing our hope in ourselves and latching on to the faithfulness Christ has won. We're justified by participating in the faithfulness of Jesus, his victory becoming ours. The hope for Peter and the other disciples and for all of us is to come to the end of ourselves and our own resources and to realize that he has done what we could never do. This is why we teach and preach justification by faith. It's by faith in Jesus, and it's by the faith of Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews says. Now, if we can't be faithful in ourselves, Jesus is faithful for us, does this mean that we just become passive? That our lives are left unchanged? God forbid. No, instead we're invited by the power of the Spirit into Jesus' victorious prayer. It can become ours and and it can begin to change us into people who embody this justice and righteousness and faithfulness of Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the recent Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life. Um, If you haven't seen it, um, it's a historical drama that tells the story of an Austrian farmer, Franz Jägerstädter. He's a devout, prayerful Catholic who lives a simple life in a tight-knit rural community. When World War II starts, he is drafted into the German military and sent away from his wife and children for basic training. When he's finally called upon to fight, he must first swear an oath of allegiance to the Fuhrer. Failure to do so will result in his arrest and his eventual death. It will result in his wife and children being ostracized in the village. And he's begged by everyone, his neighbors, the mayor, even his bishop, just take the oath even if you don't mean it. Be pragmatic. Prioritize survival over all else. Think about the greater good. And Franz wrestles. He loves his beautiful life and his beautiful family. He wants to survive. But in the end, he will not take an oath of allegiance that breaks his fundamental identity as a Christian. So he is arrested. And even when the Nazis give him the, the opportunity to, have to, to serve under non-combative, con, uh, com, in non-combative roles, he 
refuses to take the oath. And it ultimately requires his life. And what you see in the story of his life is that he's been so formed by the story of Jesus and the prayer of Jesus, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that he is strengthened by that identity to maintain fidelity and justice even in the face of the grossest injustice. And as such, his life is one of those hidden lives that have brought beauty into the world because they manifest Christ to us. This is what I believe God wills to be doing in our lives, to forming us in our identity to him. As we pray the prayer of Jesus, Jesus says, watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. Only if you are linked to the Father in prayer, united to Jesus, are you going to be formed in such a way that you can be faithful in times of trial and temptation? His justice is ours. He did it for us. But it is also formed in us in a life of prayer. So as we go this week, we're heading out into an unjust world, a world where sometimes we may have to choose between fidelity to God and what seems to be in our own interest. In other words, it's a world of trial, a world of temptation. And we have so often failed in the trial, haven't we? Relying on our own strength, falling asleep rather than praying, sometimes literally for me, and denying Christ through the decisions we make. We shouldn't be surprised. That's our, on our own. That's our only possibility. But we come now to prayer and to the table to avail ourselves of the one who is just and faithful in our stead. And we ask him to be in us, that we would be in him, to manifest his justice and faithfulness in the living out of our lives this week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.